Thank you all very much. Hey, uh, we are in. Uh, you remember what book of the Bible we're in? It's Mark. Uh, turn there, if you will. We're right around the end of chapter 12. While you're turning, uh, let me just add to what's been said. That, you, know, uh, you all have your own church schedules, those of you who are not at second. But those of you who are at second especially, do remember those Holy Week services each week next week. Uh, each one of our pastors will be speaking one day. The great opportunity is just to remember what the cross is all about, remember what the, God, the love of God is all about. If you, if you don't have services in your church and you'd like to join us, of course, we'd love to have you. And let me just say something to you, no matter what church you go to, about Easter. Uh, obviously, this is the highest celebration in the church all year long. I mean, it's a pretty big deal. You know, somebody comes out of, out of the grave alive. That's a pretty big deal, you know. It's especially a big deal when it's Jesus. Uh, and so uh, you want to celebrate that. Oh, thank you very much. You can tell that something's not right. This pollen is a lot of fun, isn't it? Lots of fun. But uh, in your church, uh, obviously, you have a big celebration to undertake. But studies show us that men who don't regularly go to church are most likely to go to church on Easter Sunday morning. And most of them, a little over half, would actually like to be asked and be able to go somewhere that wouldn't be too embarrassing for them. Maybe that's some of you in this room. Uh, but just remember that the world is open to this because this is a phenomenon, isn't it? That someone came out of the grave alive and that it, that it really defines not only our religion, but it defines all of human history. So take, opportunity, take the opportunity. Someone you may not expect would ever want to go to church. They, would, they might want to go on Easter. And uh, if you're a second... You notice that we'll be uh, suggesting to folks who want to follow up on that idea, this thing called resurrected, what does it matter? And so for three Wednesday nights after Easter, uh, we'll be presenting what difference the resurrection makes. Uh, that'd be Rocky and Brent Stenberg and myself. So uh, if you're a second, that's a good way to follow up. You can invite them to Easter and say, hey, we got this three-week thing going on uh, on Wednesday nights to talk about the meaning of all this. Uh, would you be interested? And you come with them. And uh, if you're in another church, you may have other uh, methods of following up with people and helping them. It may just be your small group. But re- be ready to think in your mind, what would the next step be if, if this knucklehead is interested in something beyond Sunday morning? And so uh, have it in your mind what you would suggest and go with them as a major key. Go with them. You don't just send them off somewhere. So be thinking about that and praying about it. Make up your own list uh, this week about how you can uh, take this momentous event that we celebrate and use it for the benefit of other folks. Well, let's look at uh, Mark 12, because we didn't finish up last week. And uh, we saw that Jesus was asked a whole bunch of questions that really had to do with his authority. And this was what was happening. These events are very important leading up to the cross. You can see the tension between Jesus Christ and the world. Between Jesus Christ and the old religion that was not cooperating very well, that was not ready to receive a Christ, that was not open to the real work of God. How could these people call themselves the people of God, the children of Israel, and then not welcome God's son when he showed up? Just an amazing thing. Well, it happens today, too. You have churches that uh, gather every week. People go through all the motions. They've been doing it for decades. And when God shows up, they don't like it. Uh, it's, it's a strange phenomenon. But they asked him all these questions. We saw that the scribes and the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, each had their questions in chapter 12. And Jesus answered uh, not only with brilliance, but with piercing radiance into the soul, turning their questions around to some of the greatest teachings that the world has ever known. Now, when you come to verse 35, Jesus asks a question. And look, let's look at this. This is chapter 12, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple course, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out. Well, let's stop right there. Let's just stop with verse 37. Now, what we're going to notice here is that 
Jesus is going to ask them a, a big question, and we're going to notice in verse 35, the religious moralists teach Christ in part. They did teach that the Christ, the Messiah, would be the son of David. They knew that he was coming from royal blood. They knew that he was in the line of the everlasting dynasty. They knew something about Jesus, just like people today. They know something about Jesus. Ninety-five percent of people in this country have a positive view of Jesus Christ. Ninety-five percent. You know, they often say, well, Jesus I like. It's, it's the church I'm not real sure about, you know. And, of course, we're not either, are we? Uh, so 95% of the people have a positive view of Jesus Christ. And people will say, well, he was a great teacher or he was a prophet. Uh, in Islam, Jesus is a prophet and he's viewed with great reverence. Of course, they would say Muhammad is the greatest of the prophets, but Jesus is a prophet. So people have all kinds of positive views about Christ and still miss the point. They'll have a very respectful even, we shall say, reverent view of Jesus Christ and still miss him. How could they miss him? Because of what Jesus is saying here. That until you know him as the Lord, until you know him as Jesus Christ, God and Savior, you don't really fully know him. You don't know him in the way that you need to know him in order to be saved. So look how Jesus puts it. Jesus teaches Christ as Lord. He's cutting through the... Just the mere tip of the hat or the reverence or the respect. Uh, here is his worship bowing down before him. David himself, he says, calls him Lord. And you look at that psalm and you realize that's exactly what David is saying. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So David is looking at his own son in the future and calling him his Lord. So Jesus is just simply going to the scriptures. And saying like he did to the Sadducees in our earlier uh, encounter uh, that we studied last week. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. You've not looked at your own text. You haven't checked it out carefully enough. And if you look at the Old Testament, you'll find the resurrection predicted in a number of texts. You'll find Messiah predicted. It's all through the text. Once Once you are introduced to it, you see how the Old Testament is really leading us right to Messiah. And there are many things said about Messiah in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Many, many things. So Jesus asked them a question, and you notice that uh, the crowds loved it. Verse 37. <laughs> they loved it. Why? Because they love they for those old stodgy teachers to get it in the rear end. You know, they love, they love that. But they also loved that Jesus, for the first time, was simply teaching them the Bible. No rabbinical crust. No enculturation of it in a way that distorted it. Jesus just taught the Bible and said, this is what it says. And he took full responsibility for everything the Bible teaches. And the tendency among us is we have our own presuppositions, predilections. We look at the scriptures and we underline the things that fit in our own thinking. And the things that don't fit, we just kind of ignore them. I had one, uh, one person tell me one time, I think it was a seminary professor. He said, sometime, just read through your Bible all the sections that are not underlined. That's what you especially need to listen to, you know, because those things probably didn't fit with you when you read it the first time. And here's one that didn't fit with them. They'd never, just, they'd never taken Psalm 110 and taken it seriously. So Jesus has a question for them, which is really the most important one, and that is, who is Jesus Christ? Now, when we come to verses 38 through 44, we're going to see this. Jesus teaches us the truth. Jesus teaches us the truth. Let's look how he does it. Verses 38 through 40. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. And, of course, there were the teachers of the law right in front of him. They had just been asking him questions. And while they're standing there looking at him, he's saying, watch out for these guys. That's pretty bold. Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. He is saying to them, A, watch out for hypocrisy. They teach what they say is the word of God, but on the other hand, they devour widows' houses <clears throat> and for a show make lengthy prayers. You know, the same thing could be said today. You have to watch out. Just because someone 
appears on television with a nice hairdo uh, doesn't mean that they're teaching you the truth. Even though they teach you some truth doesn't mean that they're reliable. False prophets teach a lot of truth. That's what makes them more dangerous. Is because part of what they're saying seems to be true, and you can justify their existence on TV by saying, well, hey, he says a lot of good things. Well, yeah, he does say a lot of good things. But he devours widows' houses. Now, just send in, and I'll send you this, this little cloth that I've prayed over, and you just you wave it in the air, and it'll make you well. You know, devouring widows' houses. And it's a lot of the widows who send in money to those kinds of programs. And people are just being manipulated. It's happening all the time. It always has. So how do you tell? You really give yourself to Jesus Christ. When you give yourself to him, you want to know what he says because you love him and your life is laid out in service to him, you'll be able to tell. Whether something that someone is doing is to promote their own self and and their own estate or whether it is to lead you into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. And furthermore, in our case, does does it comport with all the scriptures? Just because somebody ends up on TV with a real toothy grin and tells you you're fine and you're just going to make it and you just need to triumph doesn't mean that they're giving you the heart of the gospel. And it's just amazing to me with men that ought to know a whole lot better. They're just swept away like, like everybody else because it's fun, it's telegenic, it's, it's a positive message. It may be positive, but, but it may be positively wrong. When the Jews were in Babylon... In exile, under the judgment of God, because they disobeyed. Jeremiah wrote them a prophetic letter from Jerusalem to Babylon to tell them how to behave in Babylon. And he had to say, remember, the gospel is not just positive, it's also negative. You not only promote, you not only proclaim the gospel, you have to defend it. Because they're false teachers all the time. There are false teachers in Babylon. Get this. The people are under the judgment of God. And they're still preachers like TV preachers, trying to make a living off the Jews. And Jeremiah writes about them. He says, don't you listen to them. Here's what they were saying. They were saying, oh, God, God's going to get you back right away. Uh, God loves you. He has a plan for your life. Just be positive. That was kind of what they were saying. Same kind of junk that's on the TV and written in evangelical bookstores. And Jeremiah said, don't listen to them. They didn't get a message from the Lord. I'm telling you, you're going to be there 70 years. That is, some of you are going to die in Babylon. So just settle down. You're going to be there 70 years. And he says to them, build houses, build your families, settle down, pray for the peace and prosperity of this city. And people who are telling you, Jesus Christ, he's coming back now next year. We've done all the charts, you know, and we've checked out all the dates in the scriptures. It just seems obvious to us that 2008, that's the year. Don't listen to them. They're lying prophets. Jesus Christ is coming back, but nobody knows when. Meanwhile, settle down, build your family, get involved in the economy, and pray for the peace and the prosperity, the shalom of Memphis. So you've always had false prophets. And Jesus is saying here, you always will. But just watch out for them because they'll devour. They'll eat up a widow's house in order to have their own ministries advanced. So watch out for hypocrisy. It's everywhere, but it's particularly dangerous when it gets into the teaching ministry with people who are putting themselves forward as those who are teaching the word of God. But now notice in verse 41, 44, here is a widow. Amazing. It goes right from talking about the clergy who are supposed to be the picture of holiness. And he says they eat widows' houses for lunch. That's what they're like. Now let's look at the widow. It's just an amazing picture. Look at the story, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. Well, this is very interesting. 
this, as you know, in, in Jerusalem, under normal uh, circumstances, there would be about 50,000 people who lived in the city. But at Passover time, it, it quadrupled to 200,000 people. Some people say, say it got upwards of almost a million people. I mean, this, this little city was just overwhelmed with pilgrims, uh, pilgrims. And everybody would bring their offerings. You know, your tithes and offerings, you know, you, didn't, you couldn't just take it to church every week like we do. You wait for the major festivals and you bring your big tithes in. So, you know, you're a prosperous middle class farmer out there and you've been harvesting here for about three or four months and you're ready to take your offerings into the Passover. So obviously you had to watch out for the robbers and brigands along the way. But if you make it to Jerusalem safely, uh, now you're ready to take it to temple. And this is your big moment. This is your big moment. You've been waiting for. I mean, you love God and you've got three or four months of savings and you're now ready to come and give it. And in the temple courts, there were 13 receptacles, big brass receptacles, kind of like a, an inverted trumpet. You know, they open up like this and then they, they go down into the treasury behind the wall. So what you do is you, you walk up to the receptacle and pour all your coins in. Clang, clang, clang. You know, the more clanging, the better. And uh, it's, 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 it's like a, a major ceremony. You and your family walk up, and here's your big moment, and everybody's watching. Uh, we, go, we love God here, uh, so everybody watch. You know, and it makes all this noise in the brass receptacle. It's really, it's really, it feels good, you know, to be righteous and to be sacrificial and to be obedient, you know. And then, and then just to add that to have everybody know it. That's just great. Don't you just love it when somebody finds out that you've been really a good person? And they talk about you, and they say, man, you should have seen the Wilson family, you know, at the temple the other day. Man, you couldn't believe the noise that made when they put their money in there. Uh, well, no, I'm sorry. I had a good year, you know. Lord's been gracious, you know. Uh, uh, all the things that we say. Well, no, don't name that building after me. No, you don't need to do that. That's all right. You know. uh, <clears throat> and he says, watch out for that kind of hypocrisy. Uh, he says, and he's showing us here that what we're to do is to emulate sincerity. This poor widow. And what's so funny is all this is going on. All the ceremonies. It's kind of like if you've been to the Western Wall, you know, the, the remnant there after all the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, the Wailing Wall, they call it. And, you know, bar mitzvahs from all over the world. Is it on Thursday? Thursdays they do that? You got the right day? I believe it's Thursdays. You know, they come from all over the world, all different languages, to have their bar mitzvah there at the Western Wall. He had all this ceremony going on. It would be similar to that. This is Passover, and all these people are coming. They're all making their offerings, and it's just so festive, and everybody's feeling good, real good about themselves. And everybody's noticing all the color, because you have the, the teachers. They love to be out in public during a time like that, because that's people from all the villages in Israel coming in, and they want to be sure they know that, you know, here's, here's a boy who made it great. You know, he, he left his village and came to Jerusalem and studied at the university, you know, at the he studied under the rabbis, and now he's a rabbi, and he's got his nice flowing robes. And look at him. He's so important, and they just loved to move among the people. It was just so festive, and the clergy just loved it because everybody was there and giving them respect and, you know, calling them rabbi. I mean, it was just great. And here, notice what Jesus notices. It's interesting to notice what a man notices. But notice what Jesus notices amidst all this wealth, all this power, all this education, all this glitz. He calls to his disciples, hey, guys, come here just a second. Come here, come here, come here, quick. You see that little woman over there? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You see that little woman over there? What little woman? Look at all these unbelievable people here. You know, I, I saw so-and-so, you know, he runs the business over there in Nazareth, and I saw this person over at Capernaum. And I, Jesus, what are you talking about? Little woman. Now, look at that little woman. She's made the biggest offering of the day. Really? How much did she give? No, no, hold on just a minute. Two little pennies. What? Yeah, just, it wasn't a, it was a, ding, ding, when she put it in. He said, it's the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. They said, Jesus, what are you talking about? Because it was all she had. And Jesus was absolutely astonished that the woman who would only have a, two coins to buy a little bit of something to eat for the day gave up her food Gave up everything she could hope for to buy anything. Totally gone. He was astonished. Gentlemen, he's still astonished. He's still delighted. And he still notices. 
when people give with a certain motive and then when they give with a certain devotion and then when they give with a certain sacrifice, he notices that. You and I will notice all other kinds of things in the church. And we'll certainly hope that our major donors don't abandon us. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, all of us who are in leadership, you know, we're aware of dollars. Jesus is aware of hearts. And he's saying, I want you to be aware of the same thing and start with your own heart. What's behind your own giving? What is your motive? What is your sacrifice? What is your devotion to the Lord? What does it mean to you to give it over to him? And if you're a wealthy person, it's a very dangerous thing, isn't it? It's a very dangerous thing to have all that stuff. And it's a very scary thing not to have very much stuff. But here we notice that Jesus is noticing the poor widow. Now, I want to just give us, before we leave this text and go to Matthew 13, Mark 13, I want us to notice several things about giving that we learn from this. Maybe four things about our giving. First of all, it is to be proportional. Our giving is to be proportional. <clears throat> That's the reason that Jesus teaches a tithe right out of the Old Testament, because a tithe is proportional. Ten percent is ten percent. The dollars change, but the percentage stays the same. So Jesus, God doesn't ask for what we don't have. He asks for what we have, and he asks that you give proportionally. And if that's what he asks for, if you don't have as large a gift as someone else, you are not to feel as though your gift is not important. As soon as you say that, you are now thinking like a Pharisee. As soon as you think your gift is not important, you're thinking like a Pharisee. If you had a lot of money and you were giving a big gift, you would then think that my gift was not important. Because you'd be thinking like a Pharisee. So if you demean your own gift, just count on it, you would be demeaning other people's gifts if you had a big gift. So the first thing is realize what pleases the Lord, what is to him a big gift, is when you give proportionally. You give out of what he's given you. And that's all that's important. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't care how rich you are. You're not very rich. And you can't impress God with your big gift. But he could be impressed with a small gift. If out of the proportionality of your giving, you're giving something of significance to you, it becomes significant to him. Because what he wants is your heart. Through his providence, he can build his kingdom any way he wants to. But he chooses to build it through hearts, not just dollars. So giving is proportional. So why don't you think about your tithe? Are you tithing? You say, gosh, that's a lot of money. Yeah. But let's, let me ask you this. If you gave to him in accord with what he's given to you, how much would that cost you? Well, of course, you, know, you try to live on 0.01% of your income when you think about it that way. The tithe is a gift to you because God has told you he doesn't want 99.9%. He only wants 10. If you were a tenant farmer in Mississippi, it'd be one-third. If you're a tenant farmer in God's kingdom, it's only a tenth. And that's just to remind you that you belong to him and everything that you call yours is not yours. It is his. He's the landlord. You're the tenant farmer. So if you're not giving 10%, you're not giving as a tenant farmer to someone who owns that farm. So I just say to you, why don't you get with it? <laughs> you know, no matter whether you're the poor widow or a rich teacher, uh, get with it. The second thing about our giving, it is, it is to be sacrificial. Obviously, the Lord was impressed with that. Because the woman gave all she had. They gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. She put in everything, all she had to live on. Golly. In other words, she was trusting her life with the Lord. And she trusted him to take care of her. She had lost her husband, but she has a husband in heaven. She trusted him. And she loved him so much. She had a view of his grace. She had a view of his kingdom and what he had done for her. And she willingly opened up her heart. I was reading an article just this week. Where was it? Maybe somebody, I mean, this is all over the place, but um, just discussing the amount of capital that is now in the economy, not just nationally, but globally. It's just, we're just flooded with capital. So much capital, people don't know what to do with it. And uh, so there's lots of money around for a number of reasons. 
uh, and you know, the more it gets spread around, the better. But where's all that capital going? <laughs> you know, the problem, as one preacher said, you know, the problem that we have, he said, with our missions budget is not that we don't have enough money. It's that it's in the wrong accounts. It's in your banking account instead of the missions banking account. We just need a few transfers here. So let's just realize that our problem in the kingdom is not lack of money. The problem is lack of sacrifice. And the Lord is pleased with that. And it's something between you and the Lord. It's not something you can go out in the temple courts and say, hey, watch me sacrifice. It's, it's grotesque, but it's almost saying, watch me love my wife intimately. Gross. Yes. It's even grosser when you say, watch me love the Lord. And uh, let me display our, our relationship uh, as a way to make myself appear uh, more righteous than everyone else. So it's sacrifice, but it's in secret. Thirdly, our giving is joyful. When we give in a way that shows that it's mere duty or that we're the ones who are bearing the burden of the kingdom by giving in such a great way, then obviously it's not pleasing to the Lord. Here's what's pleasing to him is that we give to him and consider it a great privilege that he would let us take the very things that our hands have touched and put it into his service, into his kingdom. And that he has allowed us to be a partner not only with our voices and our minds and our feet, but with our pocketbooks. He's allowed us to be partners in the kingdom. This is amazing. So with joy, we give to him. Why? Because giving is fundamentally an act of worship. That's the reason I always encourage a man, you know, as much as you can, give in church service. Because there you're in the act of worship and make your gift as an act of worship. Now, if you're giving... Uh, Appreciated equities or something like that, it gets you know, a little difficult. You kind of have to send that into your church office. But as much as possible, when you have an opportunity to give something that you know, means a check or cash or something, put it in the offering plate. And then it's your act of worship that day. You're ascribing weight. You're ascribing glory. You're ascribing value to the Lord. And this is what he means to you. There's nobody else that's going to take a tithe out of your income. You know, only the Lord gets that with a free heart. And so you do it joyfully because in giving, you're lifting him up. You know, I've, I've heard someone say that one of these days, what we'd love to see is a picture of the glory of God in the sanctuary is that the ushers cannot carry the offering down. They have to bring it down in a wheelbarrow, you know, because God is so great. You know, that, that's, that's the expression that you want in your worship. It's joyful uh, as every other act of worship is joyful. And then fourthly, our giving is before the face of Christ alone. Our giving must be private. Um, I, uh, I know there are a few people in church that probably need to know certain things about the giving patterns in the church. I don't know how your church operates, but at Second Presbyterian, you know, we have two bookkeepers, and that's it. They're the only ones who know anything about the giving, uh, by and large. Uh, and uh, occasionally we will ask our bookkeeping department, would you show us certain patterns, you know, where there aren't any names attached? Because we don't want to violate that sacred relationship between the giver and the Lord. We don't want to get in the middle of that and mess it up. Now, we want to fuss at you, preach at you, tell you what the Bible says, uh, you know, and encourage you and exhort you. And if you're not giving to rebuke you, because that's all from the Lord and it's from his word. But I don't know who the individuals are. And because that's a sacred covenant between you and the Lord. And also because probably uh, East Memphis Presbyterians get a little nervy about money. Who knows? But uh, it, is a, it is something that has to do between, between you and the Lord. I've, I've, I know a church that uh, uh, decided uh, on some recent occasion to take their top uh, givers over the past five years, and they pick some number, say $5,000. Anyone who gave $5,000 a year over the past five years, they just decided that, you know, for the first time in many, many years, they're just going to bring all those people together and have a banquet, and the pastor's going to just stand up and tell how much he really appreciates their partnership and ministry and so on. I can understand how someone would be tempted to do that, but I tell you, I just want to go out and throw up. There's so many wrong things about that. 
First of all, who am I to thank you? You can give to me. And how can I even, on behalf of the Lord, thank you? You're thanking him. Is there some idea here that the Lord is waiting on you to give him one of his cattle in a thousand hills before he can operate? Those are his cattle. Why should I thank you? You don't get a thank you note from your church. You shouldn't. If you are, tell them to stop. It's not their role to thank you. They, in the name of the Lord, receive the gifts you give to him. And Christ is exalted through those. So we don't thank you. We intentionally don't thank you because it's inappropriate. Do I thank you for making love to your wife? Who am I? You're not making love to me. I don't thank you. We talk about it. We're instructed, but we don't thank each other. The second thing that's wrong with it is this parable right here. It's not a parable. It's a story. It actually happened. How about if we get all the poor people together who can hardly survive and who are giving a pittance to the church? Now, I might have a banquet for those people and encourage them. And say, you know what? The Lord takes note of you. But I ain't getting the rich people together and making it appear as though they're the ones that the Lord is especially pleased with and that I ought to thank them on his behalf. It's outrageous. But it happens in churches all across the country because we've lost our way on giving what its meaning is. We've forgotten what the Lord notices and what he cares about. And he knows your finances. And when you've been giving and struggling and when you have... You have tithed to him first, and then you've faced the struggle with the rest of the 90% in your life. Believe me, he notices that. And I'm not thanking you. I'm just telling you he's pleased with his servants. So that's what he's showing us here, that when you get false teaching, it will almost always turn into hypocrisy, and it will be man-centered, and will be motivated by our own pride and ambition and greed, and it will distort church life so that those who are making it in the world will be the ones who are making it with the preachers. And they will say they're making it with the, with the Lord. And Jesus said, ain't necessarily so. Watch out. Okay, let's move to Mark 13. And uh, obviously it would be uh, humorous for us to think that we could finish this in uh, 18 minutes. But let's look at the first four verses and we'll see how far we can get. Uh, verse 1. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Well, let's look at verses 1 through 4. First of all, we're going to see in verses 1 through 23, God's judgment has been pronounced. Jesus came pronouncing it. Passover was to be the, the time when they celebrated the great liberation of Israel, the great restoration of Israel. They were going to be delivered from all oppressors one day. It was, they, they would sing... Sing their songs, the songs of Zion together. And um, one day we're going to be delivered. And it was a great hope at the Passover. And here Jesus, Jesus comes, not with a message of deliverance, but a message of judgment. He really knows how to ruin a good party, doesn't he? He's just messing up this whole festival. Now, we know that uh, Jesus had already been selected for, for a murderous death. Why? Well, all you have to do is read the previous chapter, and you see he's ticking off everybody who has power. He ticks off the Herodians, who are the politicians, the Sadducees, who are the secular Protestants. He's ticking off the Pharisees, who are the fundamentalists. He's ticking off the teachers of the law, who are the seminary professors. He's ticked off everybody, and they're after him. But now he is going to come with the greatest offense of all. And many scholars suggest that chapter 13 is primarily the reason, humanly, that Jesus was put to death by uh, the Jews handing him over to the, to the Romans. This was the coup de grace. He not only now is going, has attacked their religious organizational structure and their religious culture, he now is attacking the most precious item that signifies to the Jews that they are God's chosen people. The disciples here, you notice, uh, are very impressed with the temple. They should have been. 
It was 400 yards wide and 500 yards deep. It was huge. It was made out of white alabaster stone, limestone, and it was covered with gold on the front end. People said the first time kids saw it, they would, the gold, when the sun reflects on the gold, it looks like it's just radiant with God's glory. It's just very, very impressive. You go there now, of course, and you see a Muslim mosque on, on the Temple Mount. We'll get to that in a moment. But in those days, this huge temple, which was an architectural wonder, a wonder of the world. It was beautiful. And on the backside of it, it was all this white uh, limestone. People said it looked as though it was a snow-capped mountain. Just this huge white. You know, when you go into Washington, D.C., aren't you just impressed with a mere mass of granite? It's just it's just a heavy town. Someday you think it's just going to sink, you know, all that weight on it. Just <clears throat> massive stone. And uh, certainly if you were to go to Jerusalem, you would have been very impressed. If you've been to Jerusalem and you've gone down in the tunnel underneath the western wall and you look at some of the foundation stones. Gentlemen, I don't know if you realize this, but these stones are as big as boxcars, literally. They could go from that end of this room to that end of this room. One stone. They are enormous. Now, of course, as you go up in the, in the construction of the wall and then, of course, of the temple, the stones get smaller as you go up. I'm talking about now the very base foundation stones. They are enormous. When Jesus is saying there's not going to be one stone left on top of the other, you're asking yourself, who's going to move them? I mean, these are massive, these are massive buildings with massive stones. This building, as you know, was the second temple. The first temple was built by Solomon, and it was destroyed in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came. Do you remember when they took the Jews off into captivity? They destroyed Jerusalem and flattened the temple. When the children of Israel came back, they began the project again uh, under Zerubbabel. You had Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel. Malachi was thrown in there you know, a little bit before and they were rebuilding the temple. And they rebuilt it. And the old people who had survived the Babylonian exile and come back, came back, the old people looked at it and they wept. Because they said, this is not of the grandeur of the first temple. It doesn't match. It was a smaller temple. And never do you read about the glory of the Lord dwelling richly in that second temple. But what happened was, before the time of Christ, under Herod the Great, and of course Herod the Great died right after uh, Jesus was born, Herod the Great took on the task of rebuilding the area around the temple and making it grand again. He was a great builder. He was a very wicked man, but he was a great builder, wonderful architect and, and, and uh, builder. And so the Temple Mount now was built over again with, a, with all the beauty and grandeur of the best that the Roman architects could construct. And so now the temple was grand again, and it had been under construction for 46 years. Those of you who, of course, are aware of the National Cathedral, you know, it was under construction for how many years in the 20th century? Long, long time. If you look at any of the cathedrals in, in the medieval period, it took several generations. I mean, your father and your grandfather would have worked on those same cathedrals that you were working on. It's a lifetime, multiple generational project to build a temple or a cathedral like that. And this, this too, was a multiple generational thing. It didn't actually get completed until 63 A.D. So they were in the midst of the construction, but most of the major construction had already been done. So the size and grandeur of it was very obvious. But here you have this project in, uh, in process, and it is the, one of the grandest buildings in the entire world. And it is the symbol of God's favor upon Israel. And Jesus, ruining a very good party again, is now saying, Oh, you're impressed, they, the disciples were. Look at these magnificent buildings. Look at these massive stones. Look at this incredible city. And Jesus said, It's all coming down. And not one stone will be left upon another. Wow. That was the ultimate insult to all those who heard it. Now, the disciples, you'll notice, well, first of all, you'll notice in verses 1 through 4 then, his judgment is sure. He says, not one stone here will be left on another. He's saying this judgment is coming. It is sure. Then notice, secondly, uh, well, underneath that, that this is contrary to our expectation. We're thinking, we're very impressed with these sorts of things. But Jesus is telling us that 
what you think may be the very opposite of what's going to happen. And the security that you are feeling, it may just be presumption. And he's saying that to them. This is contrary to our expectation. And also we notice that we always want to know, well, when? When's this going to happen? Let me get ready. And there's a lot of interest in that today. You know, we hear of God's judgment. Maybe we want to know, when's this going to happen? You know, and isn't, we should be asking, Lord, what would you have me do? But no, when? <laughs> How much longer do I have to live? You know, how much longer can I have a, a, the fat life, you know? Instead of, Lord, what do you want me to do? And so we, by nature, always want to know when's it, when is it going to be. Now, his judgment is sure. We saw in studying the minor prophets uh, last year. His judgment is sure. It's over and over again in the minor prophets. It was over and over again in the message of the prophets overall. And Jesus is a prophet, among other things. And it's part of his message. There's no one in the scriptures who talks about judgment any more than Jesus Christ by percentage. He over and over again talks about the judgment of God. And yet we want to dismiss it. You know, certain polls have been done in our country recently to find out what people believe about heaven and hell. You realize that about 95% of our population believes in some form of heaven. They may not have the right view of heaven, but they believe if you ask them, they have to go, you know, on a binary function, either off or on. You believe in heaven or not. Most of them do, 90 to 95%. If you ask them about hell, about 50% of them believe in hell. Why? Well, it's obvious. Hell's not a very pleasant thought, is it? Furthermore, a poll some years ago was done to say, who do you think is going to heaven? And there were certain names listed there. Uh, you know, uh, I think Bill Clinton may have gotten about 69%. Hillary got 72 or something like that. Uh, Billy Graham, I think, got around 80. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, I think, got 83. But you know who got the most? Me. Not Sandy Wilson. The one who was voting. So Oprah, you know, most of us think Oprah will go to heaven, but... I'm more sure about myself going to heaven than I am Oprah and Billy Graham, you know, and all these other people. So the number one person going to heaven in the poll was the one who took the poll. We just really don't want to face the fact that we may not be so likely as a candidate as we would like to think. And we have these games we play in our minds to get rid of bad news and to bring good news in. Americans are just great at this, you know, eliminating all the bad news, everything that's weighty, everything that's grave, everything that could be a little depressing. You know, it's going to mess up with my antidepressant today, so I'm just not going to think about it. Uh, But the fact of the matter is Jesus is saying about uh, Jerusalem, it's going to face judgment. And, of course, we know that it did. Now, when we look at the story... Uh, we'll see as we come to verse 5 and forward. Jesus is really talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And what Mark 13 is, and I've handed out some things from our Revelation study, just so if we're using vocabulary or you want to refresh your mind on different ways of looking at eschatology, you can look at that later. But Mark 13 is actually a combination of two things. Jesus, in his speech about judgment, is talking, first of all, about the immediate judgment that is coming, that is the judgment against the temple. But then he talks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds, which could be, in a symbolic way, the destruction of Jerusalem, but more likely he's talking about the end time. Now, if you remember the Minor Prophets, you remember? Same thing. They talked about judgment, the Assyrians were coming, or judgment, the Babylonians are coming. But then they would also talk about the ultimate judgment, wouldn't they? You remember that? So that when you're, it's like looking at a mountain range. You see a range near you and a range beyond that, but they all look like they're together when you're about 30 miles away. You know, it looks like it's just one range, but you have one mountain range here and then valley and then another range. Well, it's the same way with history. Judgment looks like it's one thing, but no, it really is two or three things. And here Jesus is talking both about 70 A.D. and about the final coming. Now, if we can outline it, we would say that 5 through 23 is really talking about um, the destruction of Jerusalem and things leading up to it. And then when you get to verse 24 through 27, we're talking about the ultimate end when Jesus Christ returns. So there's the framework for his comments. Now let's look at it uh, beginning with verse 5. As Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus said to them, 
Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. All right, let's look at this. Verses 5 through 13. Our persecutions are sustained. That is, they're going to be steady and sustained and regular. So don't be surprised when you're persecuted. Now, he's talking particularly about leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. He's talking particularly about that time. But there are some general principles we can learn here. First of all, many will try to deceive us. Many will try to deceive us. And we have seen this. We see it on television waves. You saw it in Babylon. You see it throughout the history of God's people. There are many deceivers. There are false messiahs. Many will come in my name claiming I am he. There are false alarms. Oh, the oil crisis and the war in Iraq and the crazy Iranians. Let's see. That has to do with Ezekiel 38. You know, people just going on making these unbelievable connections, telling you they know exactly what every historical moment means. Just forget it. I'm serious. Forget it. Jesus said these are all birth pangs. People in Jesus' day, before the destruction of Jerusalem, are trying to figure out exactly when the temple was going to be destroyed. I'm sure they had their time charts out and everything else. And they're just not going to know. He says there will be certain signs. But he says to them here, these, these things are the beginning of birth pains. That's what has to happen before the baby is born. So, yes, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be all kinds of wars. But if you think you're going to figure it out and exactly what it means about when Jesus is coming back, you can forget it. He says later, no one knows the time, not even the, the son, only the father knows. So he's saying, just realize there's going to be deception everywhere and be ready for it. Now, secondly, verses 9 through 13, he says, not only will many try to deceive us, but many will abuse us. And look who will abuse us. The church. He says to them, you'll be flogged in the synagogues, the very places of worship, and reading the scriptures in prayer. You'll be flogged there. Boy, that's wild. He says, the state, you'll stand before governors and kings. You'll have to give witness to them. You'll have to defend yourself. And there'll be irrational judgments made against you. Uh, obviously, that's, that's insulting. It's outrageous. But it shouldn't be unexpected. So, certainly, it's absolutely unacceptable. And it's absurd. And it's all the rest. But it shouldn't shock you. That when God is doing his work, the devil is doing his work as well. And he says, in the meantime, you're to preach the, the gospel to all nations. Do you notice the combination there? You're going to be tried. You're going to be witnesses. You're going to be under trial in unfair trials. And at the same time, you're going to preach the gospel to all the nations. Do you see how the preaching is supposed to go forward? Are we supposed to wait until all the presidents and all the kings and all the sheikhs say, would you missionaries please come over? Oh, we'd just love to have you. I'll build your church for you. Are we supposed to wait for that? Now, we're supposed to go in the midst of being called in before governors and kings at the threat of our death, and we're supposed to preach the gospel to all nations. You see how it goes together here. Thirdly, the family. Brother will betray brother to death. That's happening in certain parts of the world where people are being put to death because a family member turned them in as a believer in Jesus Christ. Don't be shocked. Be outraged. Be incensed. Be grieved. But don't be shocked. Because this all goes before the judgment of God. And then he says, ultimately, the whole world, because all men will hate you because of me. So we're going to stop there. But you'll see that our persecutions are sustained. And Jesus says to them in another place, when you are persecuted, rejoice and be glad because the prophets were persecuted before you. And who's going to be persecuted here? Jesus Christ. Because of the message that he bears that has an element of judgment in it. And people react to that judgment. So just realize if it happened to Jesus Christ, if all the world hated him in a certain sense, then it will hate you as well. Now, as we close, let me just say this. Why do we even spend time studying this? Well, first of all, 
because as we have seen in our study of Revelation two years ago, our study of the minor prophets last year, we could go anywhere in the Bible and you will find warnings of God's judgment everywhere. So first of all, if you simply want to study the word of God that he left with us, his deposit, his voice to us, we've got to take judgment seriously. Secondly, if he gave us this much on judgment, obviously there's something in this for us. We are to be living our lives in the face of God's coming judgment. He is a judge. He is a father and he loves you dearly as his son. But he is also a judge. It'd be like you're being a child of a man who's a judge in a court here. He's your dad, but when he's in judgment, when he's in court, you can call him your honor. He is a judge as well. And so your father in heaven is a judge and he is to be worshipped as a judge. He is to be respected and revered as a judge. He is to be obeyed as a judge. He is to be feared. And so if we do not fear God, we of all men are the most foolish. Uh, because God, that is who he is. He is righteous and holy and powerful and he's making judgments. Now, the glory of Good Friday is that for his sons, all the judgment of God that would keep us out of heaven fell upon Jesus Christ at the cross. That doesn't cease to make him a judge. What it makes him is a very gracious and loving judge so that he has become your father by exercising all of his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ. So you can look at the cross and say, behold the judgments of God. That's what he does with my sin. He kills his own son because of my sin. So he remains a judge, a righteous judge, but a very gracious judge. So when we worship him and when we think about him and when we obey him today, we certainly obey him as our father who graciously saved us. We also obey him as an awesome judge who can take the most glorious and magnificent things that humans can create and destroy them within a moment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do worship you as judge. We thank you for your righteous judgments. And we especially thank you for Jesus Christ, your son, who faithfully communicated who you are and what you have done and will do in the future. Help us to walk in the light of your judgments. Help us to live in reverent uh, fear of who you are. And then, Lord, help us to live in the grace of your love for your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.